Welcome to When Things Go Wrong, a show about what to do when things you expect to go just fine simply don't. Often it has nothing to do with what you did or what you didn't do, and yet it affects you in profound ways. I'm your host, Frank Sapovitz, and I've spent more than 30 years creating, managing, and producing major sports and entertainment events. And on this show, we'll meet fascinating people from all walks of life and business who had to manage difficult problems, often under tremendous pressure. You'll hear from pros who'll show us how they have avoided disaster or managed a crisis when one happened anyway. Thankfully, for many of us, things go right much more often than they go wrong. It would simply be exhausting if it was the other way around. Of course, when things do go south on us from time to time, we need to be ready for them. For our friends who serve as first responders, what they are faced with each and every day are, by definition, things gone wrong. And often, the situations they are handling are complex. Some can be resolved and others turn tragic. First responders, including law enforcement, firefighters, emergency medical personnel, and more, have to move decisively and move fast into rapidly evolving, worsening, and sometimes very public situations. And they train constantly to stay at the top of their game. Today's guest on When Things Go Wrong is Jeffrey Miller, who has spearheaded a clear-headed team response to many tough challenges over his accomplished career. He joined the Pennsylvania State Police in 1984 and rose through the ranks to the very pinnacle of the agency, serving as commissioner from 2003 to 2008. After a distinguished career in law enforcement, he served as the National Football League's chief executive in charge of security from 2008 to 2016, where his diverse responsibilities ranged from security at the Super Bowl, establishing standards for safety and fan behavior at NFL stadiums, and conducting investigations of controversies across the league. More recently, he serves as the vice president of security for the Kansas City Chiefs, which included looking after the team's protection during the last two Super Bowls. Jeffrey Miller, welcome to When Things Go Wrong. Thanks, Frank. Great to be with you. Yeah, it's great to have you. Now, Jeff, most of us are not first responders. We don't receive the paramilitary training that law enforcement officers experience throughout their careers. As a former senior leader in that community, what lessons based on your training can we give civilians to apply to preparing for a tough challenge in our lives or in our businesses? Frank, I think one of the most important things that any business could do or any, any entity that, that might have some exposure, um, they could really look at their operation and ask themselves some questions about what would be the most likely issues that they might face that could be maybe their public issues like you might find in law enforcement. Some companies have had product issues that have become very, very public. And if you look at, hey, what's the, what's the worst thing that could happen? What's a really bad day look like for us? And if you plan that out and you have continuity of operations planning in place, and then you exercise those plans. So really, a crisis communication plan is so critical for any organization. And, and, and understanding who the primary response person would be and who the alternates would be. In our case, I wanted to have uh, make sure that people knew we had a primary response person X and then two alternates 
Y and Z. Everyone knows what to do. So when something happens, you can quickly focus on handling and mitigating the, the incident itself and not the rudimentary items of deciding who's going to do what. Now, you, you use the words continuity of operations. T- tell us what that means. So COOP plans or continuity of operations plans revolve around how a business would be able to function, how an organization would be able to function if you had to vacate your normal premises or uh, get off of your normal systems because some sort of an intervention occurred that you couldn't control. Maybe it was a natural disaster. Maybe it was a terrorist event. Maybe it was, you know, it could be Maybe it was COVID-19. Exactly. COVID-19 is, is, is quite a disruptor that all businesses and organizations had to deal with. So a lot of the same things we learned uh, about dealing with COVID and working remotely and making sure that you can still deliver for your customers, having those plans in place, exercising those plans routinely so that if something happens to disrupt your business, you can immediately go, okay, we're going to go to the COOP plan. We're going to do this. And everyone knows where to go, what to do, how to sign on, and we can continue serving our customers. You know, that's a very, very important piece of information. You you talked about knowing where to go when uh, when it hits the fan, right? Is there already a conference line designated? Is there a meeting place designated? And then you also talked about a primary response person with two alternates because well, when you when you have a problem, when something goes wrong, it doesn't necessarily happen during normal business hours. Correct. So, uh, have you in in your experience around corporations, are are companies really prepared for this? And if they're not, what what are they missing? I would I would say by and large they're they're not, and, and I say that because. Larger companies have usually have a communications infrastructure. And so they, they have people assigned to a number of different tasks within that communications family. However, many companies that I've dealt with don't really plan for what are the things that could really impact my business. If the worst case scenario occurred, what would we have to do? Would we put the CEO out there? Would we, would we put our primary communications PR people out there? Are they trained to be able to handle crisis communication? Because that's different than regular, you know, putting out a news release because you hired a new CFO. That's a total different thing than handling crisis communications activities. So I would say, you know, but then smaller businesses, many of them don't even have the infrastructure. So they get caught short. And of course, in this in this business, being late puts you really behind the eight ball. And that primary response person, having, having a, an alternate to that or that person or two alternates to that person, at least it gives you a chance if for whatever reason that primary person is not available. They may be on vacation. They may be on a cruise ship somewhere. They may be uh, otherwise dis, uh, you know, not uh, disposed to be able to, to handle a problem. Absolutely. I mean, you could have somebody that's, you know, traveling abroad or something like that. So if you have things set up and people know what to do, and again, if you exercise those plans, and that's that's a key. First, number one, you have to have the plans and you have to envision what you should be planning for, what kinds of emergencies and 
emergency response communication plans do you need? And then you have to exercise to make sure that you're ready to go should something happen that's maybe a little different than what you thought it might be. So let's talk about that a little bit. As, as a first responder, you would regularly participate in drills that simulated responses in the field. Now, you and I, when we worked together, we, we worked on multiple Super Bowls. And when we did, all of our colleagues in decision-making capacities participated in what was called a tabletop exercise. You remember those? Yes. And so we had a third-party facilitator come in, meet with our team, and review all of our plans. And then we'd set aside several hours for him to present us with some challenging scenarios that could unfold that might ultimately derail our operation. We had to work as a team together to resolve those hypothetical problems, or at least manage the ones that weren't entirely solvable. It took time and effort to run those exercises, but I think you'll agree it built a better team response capability. Absolutely. Can, can other kinds of businesses benefit from this kind of tabletop exercise? You don't have to run the Super Bowl. Right. And some would say we, we, uh, we didn't run the Super Bowl. It ran us, right? So <laughs> I think um, that's true. Uh, yeah. So could, could other businesses um, do this? Yes, absolutely. In fact, I would argue that any business, even a small business, should have an enterprise risk management plan. In other words, you should have an infrastructure in place that's always looking at major changes and things that could impact your industry and how does that affect what you're doing. So in your planning process, every year you should be looking at the types of enterprise risk management impacts that can really change how you operate. And if you're doing that on a regular basis, some companies have an enterprise risk management committee or team that represents different parts, maybe the operations, maybe the planning, maybe the administration, all the different parts are represented to then go through the exercises of what are the biggest things that could affect our business. So if you have that in place, then the tabletop exercise that, that you and I engaged in and, uh, and that works so well um, can be put in place on an annual basis and you can bring in your outside partners or your remote operations personnel to participate in this. And you can throw in different things that might occur. Okay, we're doing X and we're doing Y. Well, just a minute, this happened. Uh-oh, now we have to shift on the fly. But again, it's much more, it's much easier to do that if you've taken the time to put the infrastructure in place and to plan regularly and then to exercise this regularly. You'll be much more confident in how you discharge your functions. Exercising them regularly was the key to that, I think, because we had done Super Bowls before. Right. There was always something new and different that we had to think about. And and if we didn't think about it one year, we had to think about it a different one. I I actually engaged in a tabletop exercise with a, with a client that uh, was a new venue in New York City, and we coordinated a side-by-side -side drill at the same time uh, as the New York City Police Department, uh, our facility team did, and it teased out an awful lot of the weaknesses in our own plan. You know, you, you have to kind of rehearse, if you will. You wouldn't do a show without a rehearsal. Well, you shouldn't launch a new product, a new process, a new procedure without rehearsing that too. Absolutely. Yeah. So let's talk about one of the most difficult crises that you faced during your career as commissioner of the Pennsylvania State Police. 
on October 2nd, 2006, you were at the University of Maryland about to take the stage as a speaker at a law enforcement conference. And about 100 miles away in a, in a small town called Nickel Mines, Pennsylvania, something absolutely horrific was unfolding. Bring us back to that morning. Yeah, so um, I was at the University of Maryland, like you said, and I was in, uh, I was in full uniform because I was going to speak, uh, speak to a large law enforcement function. And right before I went up on stage, my at the time we were using Nextel Blackberries. It just sticks in my mind. And it started to blow up with, um, with messages uh, and calls. And I stepped out and called my deputy commissioner of operations to ask him if what I was receiving was accurate because I just wanted to make sure because it described a, a very horrific uh, crime that occurred at an Amish schoolhouse, a small Amish schoolhouse in southern Lancaster County. So uh, once I received confirmation of that, I was I immediately I had to excuse myself from from the function. And then I was about I was a little over three hours away by by car and I had driven myself down um, earlier that day. So I was going to just drive back, but the Maryland State Police grabbed me and said, look, we, we understand, we'll get you there immediately. So they called in a helicopter and they, uh, uh, one of the larger Sikorsky helicopters and, and, we, and off we went. And uh, that, that cut my travel time by um, almost three hours because we got there in about 25 minutes. Uh, and, but while we were doing so, while we were on the way, I I had the opportunity from the helicopter to touch base with my operational commanders that were on scene. So fortunately, I had some excellent uh, command personnel that were there. I had an exceptional area commander, John Kurtz, and an exceptional troop commander in Jack Lawfer. And I contacted them immediately, uh, and I spoke more so with Jack Lawfer at the time. Uh, John was on his way to the scene, but I, I spoke to Jack. He responded uh, from his office. Uh, about uh, 25 minutes away and <clears throat> was able to set up some things remotely before we got there. So the first thing that we, we knew was going to happen is the media was going to descend upon this scene. And so and tell I, us, Jeff, I'm sorry for interrupting, yeah. but tell us what was happening at that scene. Right. So this was a one room Amish schoolhouse uh, where an individual had responded, had come to the scene and he, uh, he entered the schoolhouse with multiple weapons, ammunition, um, uh, construction equipment, et cetera. And he, he took the school over and he barricaded the doors of the school. Uh, he released the male students, but he kept the female students there. Uh, the teacher was able to escape um, when the male students were leaving. She had a tough decision to make. And uh, it's still. I'm sorry. No, take your time, Jeff. <clears throat> I just didn't think that would still affect me this many years later, but it does. <clears throat> Well, it was a horrible day, so I, I yeah. can totally understand. In any event, the teacher, uh, she was able to run from the school. And again, it was, a tough, it was a tough decision on her part because she basically left her remaining students in the hands of this person. 
And uh, she ran. I mean, at an Amish schoolhouse, you don't have access to a telephone. So she literally ran as fast as she could to uh, a farmhouse uh, located uh, about a quarter mile or so away and where she, where she believed there was a phone uh, in one of the barns and she made it there. She was able to um, have, have that person contact uh, the police. And so we became aware, we the state police became aware of the incident uh, as it was unfolding much, much more quickly than the perpetrator had planned for. He, he had planned to barricade himself in the school. He had brought uh, KY jelly and other things. He was going to sexually assault and murder these, these children. Fortunately, uh, he didn't get to do all of that. He did um, shoot a number of them, kill a number of them uh, after he zip tied them together face down on the floor. Uh, but that didn't happen until a little later. So the bottom line was we became aware of it. Our people responded. Our people are trained, did not want to escalate the situation. So they took up positions around the school. Uh, <clears throat> one of my one of my folks that was there, a first line supervisor at the time, uh, Sergeant Doug Burig, excellent, excellent uh, uh, trooper. He was also trained as a negotiator for our special emergency response team. So he was attempting to contact this individual inside who was barricaded in the school. Now, our people didn't know at that time that the school was gonna be difficult to penetrate. Um, they just knew that they didn't wanna force anything to happen. The best thing to do is communicate, open lines of communication, see if we can deescalate the situation. Um, other other uh, resources responded and uh, took up a position and we, we made sure that our people were as out of sight as they could be, but ready to respond. Uh, the troopers at the scene wanted to go into that school, but we did not want to create a scenario where violence occurred that we could avoid. So <clears throat> basically at one point, the perpetrator actually dialed uh, 911 and spoke to dispatchers who knew that obviously the state police was on the scene there. And he basically said that if he, if we didn't pull our people away, that he would start to, to kill these kids. <clears throat> so at that, at that particular time, you know, our people were alerted. And as soon as they heard gunfire, they rushed to school. It took a little bit to get in because like I said, he had, he had uh, barricaded the doors with desks and things, but he also used wood, uh, nails, et cetera, to, to seal it, uh, seal it up. Uh, as one of our troopers, uh, who's now deceased, but as one of our troopers got broke into a window, he was getting ready to dive through the window. The perpetrator saw him and took his own life. Uh, at that point, from that point forward, it was a rescue operation with uh, all the children uh, that were in the school. Some were still alive, some were not. Um, there were medevacs flown in. Uh, it was probably the biggest emergency response from an ambulance first responder standpoint that uh, they've ever had down there. Uh, and they, they moved these kids away to trauma centers. They took them to different trauma centers, flew them. Uh, some in Delaware, some in Pennsylvania, uh, 
to try to save their lives. At uh, sometime after that is when I responded to the scene um, a short time later coming from Maryland. And as I remember, as we approached the scene, uh, I could I could see from some distance away somewhere in the neighborhood of six or eight helicopters circling um, the area. And, and mo I think almost all of them were uh, media helicopters from Philadelphia, New York, uh, et cetera. And of course, I, I knew that there was going to be um, a, a response to this. And I'm also, you know, I was also familiar with the Amish community having grown up in Pennsylvania. So I knew that we had to do some things quickly. One of those things we did when I talked to uh, Captain Lawfer on the phone is make sure that we have a media staging area away from the scene, but close enough, right? So they, we picked a place, they picked a, uh, an auction house up on the hill <clears throat> that was about a mile away. You could see the scene, <clears throat> excuse me, you could see the scene from there, but you uh, were not on top of the, the scene because obviously we had a lot to do with the scene. Um, and I wanted to make sure that Captain Lawfer ensured that everybody understood that we would be briefing them as quickly as possible. We had uh, our PR staff on the way from Harrisburg. Uh, and of course, I was coming down there. And the governor, the governor spoke with me and uh, agreed that it would be best that I handle the, um, not just overseeing the investigation that we were doing, but also the media response and the briefings. Because uh, having someone from the governor's office uh, in Harrisburg try to do that either remotely or without the knowledge of how we operate, it would, it would have been more difficult. And we had to be quick. So um, my goal was to get out in front of the media within 45 minutes to an hour of, of responding to the scene. So I got there, got out of the helicopter. I you know, looked at the schoolhouse you know, um, from the outside through the windows, examined the scene, but didn't want to uh, contaminate anything from an evidence perspective. Uh, and then gathered with my command staff, et cetera, uh, received information from them. Basically, I just filtered myself what, what needed to be put out there. And, and we can talk about some of the things that, that go into that. Uh, there is a lot of pressure, obviously, uh, to, get, to get out there quickly. In this case, there was even more pressure in the sense that this Amish community is a very tight-knit a community in uh, Lancaster County, and we did not want to see them re-victimized. And having worked with the media, and know that you know they have a job to do, and I respect that. But when you have that many people responding from, in essence, within the next few days, there we had people from all over the world—the Netherlands, Australia—you know, media folks that that came in there and set up shop for a, for a whole week. I mean, we had. Uh, Nightline, we, you name it, they were there. So it was a situation where we wanted to make sure that the media understood that we weren't just some mom and pop operation and they weren't going to get briefed adequately, which would lead them to go out into the community and start putting cameras in people's faces and microphones. And these are people that do not want to even be photographed. Right. So there, there's a lot of things that went into it. So I knew that if we could get on the air quickly, factually with what we knew at the time and let them know we're going to come back and we're going to brief you as needed. The next briefing is approximately at this time because we were gathering information we we're putting things together. Uh, and the media, the media just wants to know what happened. Why did it happen? How could it happen? 
Um, so there's a lot of that sort of information you're trying to gather. And and you want to be the the authentic, authoritative source of that information. Correct. You don't want that coming from other places. That's that's right. And and um, you know there there were there were other things that complicated matters because you have um, you have a coroner, you have other elected officials, a district attorney. So these are all people that I interfaced with and and basically said, listen, th- this is how we're going to do this. This is how I believe we need to do this. Um, obviously, I, I don't have uh, the authority to order an elected official to do X, Y, or Z, but we, we met and there was a meeting of the minds, if you will, and this is how we did it because I did not want alternative versions of what we learned because I knew I was going to get it I had seen some of it myself and I was going to get it directly from my investigators. And so I met with them regularly and had our PR people present. And, you know, literally I, we had a command post that we brought in. There were times, you know, I remember doing an interview with John King from CNN while standing in the middle of a field, um, you know, just doing an interview with him or talking to the governor and talking to uh, county commissioners or whatever, you know, you name it, we we were doing it, and we were doing it right there. But we had the people there. We had our command operation. We had a perimeter. We had everything established. We had the staging area. We had the location that I would go and brief the media. Uh, we had adequate space for them to come in and set up their cameras. In fact, there's a picture behind me on the wall, which shows uh, that someone took that I, I kept that shows maybe, I don't know, 100 cameras and all stacked up and, and radio people, et cetera. And so that's, that's, that's how we did it. We got out there and we did it. Fortunately, I was well-trained by the, the FBI in how to do these things. If I had not had that training and the ability to really practice this stuff during the training process at the FBI Academy, I probably wouldn't have been as comfortable in handling this. There's that notion of drilling again, right? You you had to go through it once as a simulation during training. Then you had to put it into effect in real life. And you you conducted the first press conference, but I'm sure there were lots of things you still didn't know. Correct. That people wanted answers to. Mm-hmm. So how did you handle that? So one of the things I tell people when I've spoken on things like this or crisis communication is, don't be afraid to say you don't know. So it's, it's, it's very important to get out there quickly, but it is more important to be accurate. So when you get up there, look, this is what we know. Here's what we know at this time. We expect to know more. Boom, boom, boom. I can remember in this situation, there were basic facts that I had in the beginning. And I didn't want to go beyond what I knew. And I wasn't going to you know, make a jump to something that I thought, well, maybe, no. What do we know? What do we know factually? And what can we release? And in this case, we had the benefit of the fact that the the perpetrator was dead. So we were not going to have to prosecute this case in court. So that freed me up a little bit on what I could say. And my goal was to be as transparent as I could possibly be, provide them with as much factual information as I could. And that's what I did. And I think by doing that, 
and by being punctual and prompt and factual in what we released. And we did this, I did briefings multiple times a day for like a week. By doing that, they became comfortable with the fact that, okay, these people know what they're doing and they're going to give us the information so that we can do our jobs. We will respect what they've asked us to do in return. So it was a, it was a give and take and a win-win. Did, did you from time to time kind of give them an, an advance warning that you would come back to them with additional information or give them a time frame on when you would? Absolutely. At every formal briefing that I did, I would announce to everyone there at the end of it that we anticipate coming back to you at this location in three hours. You know, and in, in the beginning, it was more frequent. And then after that, as we gathered some more information leading up to the final large press conference we did with, with the governor uh, standing right over my shoulder and, uh, you know, uh, it was carried live. I forget now, but they told me every market in the United States carried it live for 45 minutes to an hour, which is, I don't even know if that would happen today, to be honest with you. But this was just one of those things. It was such a terrible situation. Uh, but going back to what you said, Frank, another thing I wanted to mention is, you know, when you do a briefing like this, you are not just speaking to the media. You're speaking to your personnel. You're speaking to the vic- in this case, the victims, their families, um, their friends, the community. And so some, there were things that we did uh, at times. And one of the things we identified right away was we wanted to have a liaison with the Amish community. Obviously, the victims' families were families that we got to know during this case and and became close with over the years. But at that moment, we wanted to have uh, an individual from the Amish community that we could talk to that was somewhat um, distanced, if you will, like this person didn't have uh, a relative that was killed or something like that. But so we had a we had an elder uh, in the Amish community there that we worked with. So I had my area one commander work directly with him. So if we had something that we were going to do um, that I thought could have an impact on the Amish community, if I said this or if we, we talked about this, we ran it by him first to get their feedback and their input. And they greatly appreciated that. In fact, when and this is just something that we did, but we use horses in the state police in, in our, you know, uh, civil disobedience or protests or whatever, we, we use them. So for the funerals at the very end of the week, we, we used our horses as, as part of that. And they were really touched by that because they felt like we were reaching out to their way of life, if you will, in, in embracing that as part of what we did to protect the community at the time when they were, when they were burying these young kids. I, I'm really impressed with with the level of cultural sensitivity that you exercise. That that is so important because there are victims. Now, a lot of things that go wrong do not have fatalities, but they still have victims. There are still people who are affected by even words that are said or actions that are taken. And what you did was you reached out to that particular community and you made sure that your messaging to the public was sensitive to their culture. Yes, we we thought that that was very important as a part of what we were doing. So, and again, you have to remember 
the Amish, they, they don't have like a color television in their home. They're not going to go home and watch the six o'clock news or watch, you know, whatever. That's not going to happen. So basically when we did these press events, we also made sure that there was room for the Amish folks that wanted to come and be part of that. So as I'm looking out at these cameras, I'm also seeing, you know, elders in the Amish community. And it was, uh, it was really, it was like nothing I've ever seen before. And having uh, two daughters, and at the time they were the same age as the kids that were victimized was very difficult uh, for me personally. Uh, you know, we got through it, but it, it, was a, it was a difficult situation. But going back to the media, in the beginning, we did a lot of briefings and we did them routinely several hours apart. And then I did stand up. We got requests for whether it's uh, ABC News or CBS, uh, the morning show on CBS, uh, whatever it was. We did those stand ups. I did those things, Nightline and, and things. But because of the training that I was fortunate enough to have at the FBI, very detailed training at the FBI Academy, things like I actually had done remote interviews, television remote interviews. So I can remember when I had to do a remote with Larry King on CNN live. I remember, you know, I've done this before. I know exactly what this is going to be like. Now it was a little different because I couldn't see him. I could hear him in my ear. And when he came to me, you know, I'm talking to a camera as if it's Larry King, but I can hear Larry King. He can see me. I can't see him. It's a little strange to do that, but having done it in an academic practice uh, environment, it, it pr presented me with the confidence that I knew how to do this and it's just another one of these and I'm going to do it. And so I did so many of them uh, during the course of that week, different ways, different live, taped, whatever. Um, we did that and we tried to give them uh, as much information as we could. The biggest question that the media wants to know when you have a situation like that, and, and we've had Obviously, we, we've had a raft of, of active shooters lately that have been, you know, just terrible. But what, the, what people want to know, what the media wants to report on is, why did this happen? You know, what was the motive? It's very difficult to discern that. But I remember in this case, in, at one point, there was, uh, there was some information um, about a relative of the perpetrator and I wanted to make sure we nailed that down first. And the relative lived, I think, in another state, and we had law enforcement go and interview them, and we reviewed it. But when I was being asked questions, I said, listen, I'm not going to speculate. I don't know the answer to that question. When we get facts that we can share with you, we will do that. And I think I had developed some credibility with them because I think they were a little bit surprised by how transparent I was. And again, we didn't have to prosecute the shooter. He was already dead. So that that gave me the chance to be more transparent. And I really wanted to because I wanted people to understand what happened, answer their questions and get to the point where uh, we could have this media encampment move away from Lancaster County so the Amish could go back to life. So after a situation like this, a criminal situation, there's always an investigation. We're not going to talk about that because most, most people will have to investigate what went wrong with whatever they did. When it comes to law enforcement, it goes on for a very long time and, and, uh, an enormous number of details. What, what 
I'd, I'd more curious in finding out is do you or do, does your team evaluate your response after something like this happens to determine if you could have handled it better and what you did well? Yes, yes. In fact, I remember during the incident when this incident where we were working this thing actively, I remember telling one of my deputy commissioners that, listen, this is not the most important thing right now, but I want you to begin to catalog the information, et cetera. We are going to go back, obviously, and do an after action report on our response. But I also believe that there will be a great deal of interest in the law enforcement first responder community to learn from this. And in that community, we always try to learn from each other. If something happens in New York, we're up there, we're working with the NYPD, we want to learn from them. If something happens in our area, others will want to learn from us. So I wanted to make sure that we cataloged everything and we pulled everything and we did. And so when we got to the point where this was done and we had done our after action, we, we received literally hundreds, if not thousands of requests. I, I don't, I don't even know how many places I spoke in Canada. I spoke uh, all over the United States. My rule was that the only people from the state police that I would permit to go out and speak at one of these events. And they came through my executive officer and there was a decision made on who we would use to do it. Sometimes I did it. Um, sometimes we had a supervisor, et cetera, but I only allowed the people that were actually involved in the incident to be the ones that spoke about the incident. And again, it was more than just the media. That's just one aspect of it, but there's, there are other tactical things about your response and your engagement and perimeters and what you do and how you do it. But we learned so much in that incident and we, we went and we, we put together really a three hour presentation, almost like a seminar, if you will, on this incident. And we had actual 911, you know, radio communication. We had a lot of things and we laid it all out and we had video because there was so much media there, we were able to pull different things as well. But we put this together and the long one was about three, three and a half hours. And so if we were requested to do something like that, we would come and do it. Um, we also had some shorter ones for different specific aspects of, of this particular case. And literally, I, I spoke to some people at the state police maybe a year ago, and they said that they, uh, they were finally, like 15, almost 15 years later, not being requested as frequently to do this, but it's been used at the FBI Academy, it's been used all over the place. So in that sense, if you're thinking about it while you're in it, you can pull the right information so that it, after it's all over, you'll be able to go back and do something that might help others. And, and you were able to actually reach out to others who had situations that ended up being somewhat similar, but your situation hadn't happened yet you're getting a lot of intelligence and wisdom from people who had to tackle similar kinds of situations that would be common to your particular business being law enforcement. That's, mm -hmm. that's fascinating. So I'm going to take you off the hook on, on the rest of this story, which is really, I know, very emotional for you. I, I did want to ask you a little bit about a, a 
mentor of yours that you gained some really valuable wisdom from in terms of managing the message. And that was retired Marine Lieutenant Colonel and FBI trainer at Quantico, Jim Vance. Tell us a little bit about him. Jim, Jim Vance is just one of the best trainers I've ever been fortunate enough to be around. And he was, he taught at the FBI Academy when I went through uh, the National Academy uh, in 1994, I believe uh, I went through uh, 1994. Yeah, I believe that was the year. Anyway, he was a he was a trainer at the academy, and he had spent a career in the Marine Corps, and he was basically the public information officer for the Marine Corps at one point, and he was very experienced and dealt with so many different incidents. But he uh, he was the one that put on the graduate level training. Uh, that, that we actually got credit through the University of Virginia for taking, but it was exceptional. Some of the best training I've ever had. But this guy was, he was, he was quite a character and uh, he, he could tell the best stories you'd ever heard. And he was somebody who, who really kept your attention because um, he, he knew how to reach you. But he had something that stuck with me. And he, he said, mess up, fess up, dress up. And, and really, if, if, if there's anyone out there from a, a business or an organization. If you if you don't remember anything I said, but just remember this: mess up, fess up, dress up. That's that's from Jim Vance, and Colonel Vance said that because you know if you make a mistake, if your company screws up, you mess up. You have to immediately fess up and dress up. He used to say, "You can't shine shit; it doesn't buff." Well, he's right about that, right? Mm-hmm. So think about it. It's very simple, but a lot of companies don't do this. They don't do it. They mess up, but they do not fess up. In fact, the delay in doing the fess up can really put you in a jam. So his thing was like, look, if you make a mistake, immediately own it. Get out in front of it. Look, this should not have happened. We made an error doing this. We should have done it this way. Here's what happened. Here's the impacts of that. We're trying to make that right. And then dress up. Here's how we're going to prevent this from happening in the future. We've already taken this, this, and this step, and we're going to follow up over the next six months with an outside vendor to do this and this and this. Th- these are simple principles, but I'm amazed to this day how many times I see this not happen. And if you don't get out in front of it, then others will define the narrative for you. So by the time you do get to respond, you are so far behind the eight ball, and now you're only dealing with trying to undo the narrative that they're talking about, not actually talking about the real narrative, right? So you, you really put yourself at a disadvantage if you, don't, if you don't really think about it and get out there as soon as you can to define that narrative. And nowadays with social media, any number of people can, can define the message for you. That's what's so important about this. If you can be out there authoritatively and genuinely taking responsibility talking about what you're going to do in the future to keep it from happening, or just saying, I, we don't really know what's happening or what happened. We're going to take a look at it and we will be back to you with an answer. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you're right. Social media creates even more immediacy. Uh, And that's why you see companies, the, the sharp ones are always monitoring this. So once they see something that's a negative for their company, 
that's gaining some momentum, they can quickly identify it and they can start to deal with it. Because again, you could, you could lose a lot of, uh, you know, of your value if you, if you're slow on the draw with this. We've been talking with Jeffrey Miller about how he responded to things going wrong over his career, including while serving as commissioner of the Pennsylvania state police. There are a number of key takeaways from this discussion that apply to every business, every industry, and even to our personal lives, not just law enforcement and security. When something goes seriously wrong, you have to be ready. You have to have a point person and a chain of command that the entire team recognizes. You may have to manage more than just the response. You may have to manage the media or the public at your company's doorstep. How you handle those interactions from the very beginning can determine whether you will be seen as an authentic spokesperson or just another symptom of what's gone wrong. Tons of great insights from someone I admire greatly. Thank you, Jeff, for joining us on When Things Go Wrong. Thank you for having me on, Frank. I appreciate it. Learn more about how to plan for and survive the inevitable blips, bloopers, and blunders of life and business in What to Do When Things Go Wrong, available in hard copy, ebook, and audiobook from Amazon.com and other fine booksellers. I'm Frank Sapovitz, and remember, if it hasn't happened to you, it just hasn't happened to you yet. When Things Go Wrong is produced by Chris and Mandy Wimmer and is a production of Black Barrel Media in association with Fast Traffic Entertainment. You can find more Black Barrel Media shows on Apple Podcasts or wherever you are listening. For more background on this show, join us at Black Barrel Media on Facebook and Instagram, on B Barrel Media on Twitter, and on our website at blackbarrelmedia.com. See you next time, if all goes well.